0: You're in such a weird mood. It's amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's go. Let's go right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Ready. You got this? Do you need to clear your throat one more time?
1: Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage, and I am joined by Sylvie Lubau. Sylvie, how are you?
0: I'm Good. How are you?
1: <laughs> I'm great. I am uh, hydrated. Wow. I am uh, present. I'm calm. Mm-hmm.
0: Word of the day.
1: Yeah. Very excited for our guest today, Tyler Tringus, who is a general partner and founder at the Calm Company Fund, which is designed to help entrepreneurs um, build profitable, sustainable, calm businesses through thoughtful investments. So it's kind of like investing that's not VC investing, it's really entrepreneur friendly for smaller businesses or SaaS businesses, trying to help align incentives between the entrepreneur and the investor if it is a a successful smaller business. Awesome. Yes.
0: How's your life? What's got you talking too loud?
1: Oh, me? Little old me? Oh, you. You know, life is good. I'm very excited because, you know, I moved during COVID. Sure did. And... On the way out, I gave a lot of my furniture away to friends and family. I was like, oh, this couch I've had for a few years. Like, do you want this thing or these chairs or so whatever? So generous. I'm a very generous person. No, uh, That's the point of the show is so everyone can know that. <laughs> um, but anyway, I was like, we're moving and I'm going to get furniture that like, fits the new space. It'll be so great. And I moved in October of last year. And this week, 90% of the furniture I ordered showed up. <laughs> So I've gone from having that's a, a big, house mostly empty. It's a big day. Yeah, it was a very big day and very exciting. And now there's rugs, and my living room has a couch and chairs. And when you were here before, we had one chair and we couldn't even shoot in there. Remember, like this is not going to work. Yep. like this is gonna. It's gonna look like you just live in an empty house because I did. Um. So it's. I've it's been like very excited It's like one of those model homes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: like, do you really live here? Is this like? Are people here?
1: The old bowl of wooden fruit, uh, (laughs) that kind of deal. Um, But I don't know if you know this, but the pandemic has delayed a lot of uh, global supply chains. Yeah, yeah. So it takes a while now, you're ordering that outdoor furniture, that fire pit, like just hold on to your butt, it could be a while.
0: (laughs) Ooh, a Jurassic Park reference, my favorite. (laughs) Hold on to your butts. I was gonna say, you know, waiting is the hardest part. I was gonna hit you with a Tom Petty reference. Oh, nice. uh,
1: But instead, instead, instead,
0: instead, have you had, this is, we've got Michael
1: Crichton. This is chaos. This is the most chaotic intro to your interview we've ever had.
0: We need calm.
1: Okay, let's calm down. Let's get this under control. Yes. Let's just center ourselves. Let's go to Tyler,
0: the king of calm.
1: The king of calm. Just walk us through this like amazing journey of bootstrapping and what's possible um Tyler it's been a while man thanks for coming on the show what's up yeah it's great to be here Life moves quick, life moves quick. I feel like the last time we caught up was like, it felt like a year ago, but I feel like it's probably been like three
2: or four. Is that right? At least two years, I think, yeah. You know, I feel like we're all going through the COVID time warp, but uh, yeah, no, it's been a while. So it's good to catch up, dude. Thank you
1: for being here. Thank you for being on Talking Too Loud. Um, And as you know, this is a show about things that get me talking too loud. When I get excited, I can't stop myself. Um, We want to know
2: what's going on in your world. What's got you talking too loud these days? I feel like I'm kind of like always talking about something too loud. <laughs> um so I guess maybe we'll just pick like what's the latest thing. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about um gathering. It's kind of like a reference to this book The Art of Gathering that I read about 2 years ago and and oh, I don't know it's it. really really good. Highly recommend it. It's the first time I'd ever really thought about like designing a gathering of humans. Um and like mm. actually thinking okay. that through, you know, besides like oh, like everything from like a dinner party to like a huge conference, you know, the idea of like what do you actually want to do and how do you accomplish that versus just sort of like whatever, having people over and and eating food and, um, you know, like conferences and IRL meetups and stuff like that are starting to come back. And so it feels like this is really interesting moment to like, we've kind of been able to shake the etch a sketch and now we can like redraw from scratch something that actually Mm -hmm. kind of meets what people are trying to do in these kinds of gatherings. And so yeah, like I went to my first conference in two years, a couple weeks ago. It was amazing. Everybody was mm-hmm. like overjoyed being around other humans and we're yeah. throwing our own in about a month here in Mexico City. And so I've been okay. just like thinking a lot, a lot, a lot about what do people actually want to get out of these kinds of trips um, and how can we deliver that without kind of just taking the formats that already
1: exist? And um, yeah, what would the the cliff notes for you be of like, the the book, The Art of the Gathering. Like, what, sh- what should we take from it in terms of, like, how should we rethink getting together? How should we rethink meeting?
2: Yeah, I mean, the book is really good, and it's got a lot of, like, really tactical tips around, like, you know, that it's important as the host to sort of take ownership of what is acceptable at this kind of gathering and what is not, right? And that that can seem overbearing, but actually it's a really good way to contribute and, and make an experience great is by actually putting like constraints on it. So there's a lot of things like that. But like the, the high level, I think, is just like think it through, like think about what do you actually want to accomplish and why is everyone there and kind of how do you do that? I mean, for me, with the, the thought process with, with conferences is that like I sort of feel like right now a lot of conferences are that I've been going to for, you know, a decade have been very talks focused. You know, it's a lot of like sitting in your butt, staring at someone, you know, doing a kind of like largely pre-rehearsed kind of thing. Yeah. And now we have amazing podcasts and like that content is like fully available like all the time while I'm at the gym working out, you know, I don't need to fly somewhere to like download that context. Um, And so I really think like there's an opportunity to start really creating a lot more like conferences, meetups, everything around just like explicitly forming deeper professional relationships. So like really building the structure around how do you create interesting conversations, create space, create the substrate for like people to become basically friends, you know, that they would call on like three, six months from now hmm. when things are tough, you know, versus uh, some tactical stuff that would have been better in a in a blog post or a podcast. So anyway, that's what I'm thinking about a lot. That's cool. And this yeah. is founder summit, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: And are there things that you're doing like this time that are different than things you've done before? Like because it's obviously you haven't done one in at least two years, right? We so haven't like, done one ever, actually. The first okay. one was supposed to be March twelfth, twenty twenty. Oh, that's oh, okay. Yeah. Cause I thought that one still happened. Cause I remember talking to people about it, it happening.
2: It did kind of happen, basically. Okay. Ab- about 40 or 45 of the attendees had come early. And because it was March 12th, if you go back and look at like the COVID graph, like that was oh, the yeah. inflection point. Oh yeah, I know, point. yeah. That <laughs> exact week. Oh like, that's you know. wild. <laughs> so we canceled it like four days before. We were like, look, this is now, you know, whatever. Like the country of Italy yeah. has collapsed. You know, we, we, we can't hold a conference anymore. Yeah. But there was like 40 or 50 people who were already here. And so we still- okay had some meetups and dinners and some people were wow. texting me later. They were like, that was the best conference I've ever been to. I was like, you mean the canceled version of the conference? <laughs> they were like, yeah. yeah, it was really fun. I met a lot of great people. Yeah.
1: Wow, That's so funny. We had a similar timing. We had our like company ski trip. And when we went, we're like, oh, COVID's a thing. And we came back on a Friday and we had like a COVID task force and they're like, we have to shut down the office. So literally I was on the bus with everybody and I got home and wrote an email like, please don't come back on Monday. Like very fortunate and weird, right? To like have that be what it was before.
2: Yeah, but you know, we're getting slowly but surely uh, back to back to normal life, which is kind of exciting. Yeah,
1: yeah. We're gonna obviously talk about um, the Com Fund. We're gonna be talking, of course, about that. But can you okay. tell the audience and listeners, like, you're an entrepreneur, you've built a business, you've done it without funding. Like, what's the story behind Stormapper? Um, give, give us some context on how you, how you figured that out and what, what the business was and, and you sold it and like, just bring it, bring us into your mindset through all of that.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was not like a technical person uh, for most of my career. I didn't have a Computer science degree. I was doing finance and economic stuff and uh, worked for a consulting company, got acquired by Bloomberg, and then decided, like, now I think it'll be cool to to dive into tech. And so I kind of started teaching myself to code uh, and learning about, you know, whatever, like the lean startup had just been published and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right, let's do this. So I'm building a company and it was actually originally in the clean tech space. So we were building... um, like just software to make it really easy to switch your home to rooftop solar. And at the time it was incredibly complicated. And I kind of built the first version and I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, this is software. Like I got to go raise money from VCs. Uh, Right. That's like how you do it. You know, I don't have any money myself. And this business, you know, kind of needs like maybe half a million, a million bucks to really get off the ground. And so I started pitching VCs and I pitched like every VC, like we were actually quite good at the like cold calling aspect. <laughs> I was living in New York and I like saw like random famous VCs having dinner in restaurants and I would just go over and talk to them. So we pitched like everyone. And I really had like this firsthand experience, uh, basically like the business essentially just failed because we were really focused on raising money and we couldn't raise it like VCS were just not investing in clean tech at all at that point in time and certainly not in sort of software clean tech. Um, so I kind of learned that like okay, you can have like good business ideas that need a little bit of capital that just aren't a fit for traditional venture capital. yeah. So then I said okay well that sucked I and mean, it was quite a painful experience to be totally honest. I lost literally all my money yeah. It was like completely dead broke like living off credit Oops. cards like had to like yeah. leave my apartment in New York because I couldn't afford it. Like that sucked. (laughs) Maybe let's try something. This is not what I saw in the social network. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I was like, maybe there's a way that requires, you know, less permission from Mm. random gatekeepers to get started. So that's when I started like kind of learning about bootstrappers and like people who are just kind of like launching stuff. And I kind of set that as my intention and I was just like rapidly iterating I built the first version of this store locator, you know, widget thing, uh, on like one flight. I was actually flying to Argentina, and I literally like wrote the whole version of the first version of the product just like on the overnight flight. Uh, <laughs> launched it the next day and had like paying customers. I was like, "Oh, this is fantastic! Like, I'm already making money off of this thing." And you know, two and a half years into the last thing, and I hadn't made a dime. And so yeah, so it you know turns out as you well know, bootstrapped B two B SaaS is a fantastic kind of uh, way to build a company, and just kind of like grew it organically, um, took over a niche where we had you know very few if any competitors, and built this very simple, straightforward product at internet scale that turned into you know what I call just like an internet SMB. Like it was you know nice success. Had a small team, was throwing off a lot of profit. Uh, and then I sold it to a private equity shop about three years ago. And then I started thinking, like, that was really cool, was sort of a life-changing outcome for me. It would be awesome to help some folks get to that same, you know, or or, or surpass um, those same kind of milestones, but without the $50,000 in credit card debt going dead broke uh, part of the equation. So. That seems nice yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) avoiding
1: the dead broke moving out of your apartment thing is always a nice uh, yeah nice mission yeah yeah but it's also like interesting because i think there's like startups we have the like uh where we only see the success bias the Mm -hmm. survivorship bias survivorship bias yeah where we see these companies that raise lots of money and they have a crazy valuation and they may not even have a lot of revenue but we all talk about those stories. And then inherently, we don't talk about the stories of all these small companies that are changing people's lives. Like mm-hmm. actually yeah. changing. You know, like every founder, if your company gets to whatever it is, $3 million in revenue, if you could be profitable, like your life has changed. Like yeah. it's just it's just forever changed. And then you have somebody on the other side who's raised a ton of money and they're like basically betting it all again and again and again. And there's obviously times when that works out great, but there's a lot of times when like the founders still don't have liquidity. You know, it actually doesn't necessarily change their life sadly. Yeah. Um so it's cool that you went through that and then realized, wait, more people need to know this. Like this is <laughs> this is a viable option. I felt the same way with us in terms yeah. of when we did our buyback. It's just like, holy shit, like this is possible. Like right. no one talks about this thing cuz it yeah. doesn't seem that sec- it's almost like too approachable. It's like, yeah, you know, everyone could do it. You're like well, then you're not the like hyper funded, crazy exception of the rule. And therefore, it's almost like not as interesting, even though the reality is like the likelihood of changing someone's life is so much higher.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's this element of the like the four minute mile kind of dynamic where like, no one could break the four minute mile for like decades and decades. And then one person does it. And then like 30 more people do it like that same year, you know, and like, it's just, there's something about humans that there's just so many things that are possible that are really just only held back by like no one doing it and and telling people about it. Uh, and then once you do it, you're like, oh yeah, that's possible. It could work for
1: me too. Yeah. And so talk about the Com Company Fund. Tell us about like, you know, you jumped into that mm-hmm. to help enable other entrepreneurs to build these types of businesses, but you are giving them funding. So how does it work so that everyone stays aligned?
2: Yeah, I mean, the goal is to really be like the the full support network for entrepreneurs building what we're just calling calm companies um
0: yeah what know, is calm what does calm mean
2: yeah it's a good question i mean so it's sort of i think a a, a next iteration on the idea of bootstrapper right because bootstrapper i think I've probably used the word a million times in my life. Like, I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the word, but it's very, very tied to this idea of not raising any outside capital, right? You don't have any external investors. But over time, it's kind of, come to mean a lot of things that I think are more important around sort of like optimizing for the sustainability of the company, right? Like maximizing the chance that the company is around for 30 years, uh, around really focusing on employee retention and making sure that, you know, you keep your your key employees around for a decade, around like treating customers well and, and avoiding kind of like really crappy, you know, high growth sales tactics. Like it's just sort of an ethos that doesn't Necessarily have to flow from not having outside investors. And so, what we've tried to do is kind of flip it around to say, like, what's a way to summarize all of these values without it being a function of whether or not you use outside capital? Because the reality is that a lot of people who are bootstrappers, you know, they had something else, right? You know, some people did truly, truly bootstrap from absolutely nothing, but a lot of people had a spouse with a really high paying job that paid their rent for two years, or they had an inheritance windfall or something like that, which doesn't register on the cap table, but is different. I
1: love that thinking. That's so true. And that is like mostly not said.
2: Yeah. 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 So I think like we, we basically sort of just started tapping the tuning fork and seeing who resonates kind of thing, right? So just saying like, okay, who's picking up this vibe and what do they use to describe it? And kind of far and away, the kind of center of mass around, you know, what does this all mean was kind of calm. Because calm is sort of like focused and resolute. It's not unambitious. It's not a lifestyle business. It's like, you're still trying to do big things, but you're trying to do it in a measured, more balanced, kind of focused way. Um, and those are calm companies. I mean, they manifest more in the sense of like companies focused on usually like sort of more niche aspects of the economy. So you're not trying to like, you know, displace Uber or something like that. Um, you're focused on building the company to be profitable, not being dependent on outside capital, even if you, you know, use it, um, you know, those kinds of dynamics. And we're trying to just proactively invest in them in a market where, you know, basically nobody wants to invest in a company that says, yeah, we're going to we're gonna raise 500K and then we're going to be profitable. And then we're probably never going to raise any more money. That's like a, a death knell <laughs> in the fundraising process yeah. to, for most everybody else.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you do that and you're, you know, raising from a traditional venture fund, like it can hurt their ability to raise more funds, right? Because they can't go back and talk about the markup and like, oh, the company just did their Series B and it's 10X more and we're in the right companies. It's like the antithesis of that model, right? Yeah. How do you... When you're looking for the companies to invest in, like, what's a good company look like? What's what's a com company that looks good? And what's a com company that looks bad?
2: Yeah, I mean... So um,
0: binary, Savage. So binary. <laughs> good and Let's bad. Let's keep it
2: binary. Let's good keep and it. Bad. Yeah. Um, so it, here's some examples. A com company that looks great is... And like our bread and butter in terms of companies we're investing in all day and all night are industry-focused B2B SaaS in an industry that is, you know, kind of, neglected and overlooked and nobody thinks about it right uh and so we've got a lot of investments in you know random like the the it managed service providers the people that like install network Mm -hmm. devices into your into your buildings and 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 offices people don't think about them but they need software and there's there's quite a lot Mm -hmm. of them right um you know we have investment in a company that provides software for parts of the film production stack right so we have one that's uh it's collaborative teleplay writing for, for TV shows. And, and they've got, you know, customers like bleep, bleep, bleep. We will have bleeped that, but I just want to be the bleep. bleep,
0: bleep. bleep. You just wanted to be the bleep. Yeah. Okay. Bleep. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Making sure that's, that's why we did that. Okay.
2: Yeah, so so it's these kind of like focused niche things where, you know, you're displacing pen and paper, you're displacing sort of, you know, sticky notes or really really old crappy software. And the kind of magic is that even maybe 5 years ago and certainly 10 years ago, it didn't make sense to build software for these industries because yeah. you needed yeah. 3 to 5 million bucks to actually build a real software product. And if your kind of ceiling is a 50 million ARR business, that's just not the right ratio, right? You just needed a bigger mm. market to go after to justify that upfront cost. But now, you know, you can build a really viable SaaS business for, I, I generally estimate it as like 500K in cash or sweat equity, right? So if you have like a really talented engineer or two people and they're working for six months, that might be 250K and then you want 250K extra outside, you got yourself a SaaS company. Um, of course, you can bootstrap it too. It's just It's just more time, right? So that's a good one. Um, a bad one, one that we see kind of quite a lot are kind of folks that are trying to force people to buy something that they don't want. <laughs> um, and that's where you that's often also get good. relegated into the calm company. <laughs> yeah. You see this a lot in like also similar applications of like B2B SaaS and industries where mm-hmm. somebody works mm-hmm. in the industry and they're like, Oh, you know, like my, my software for this process is so much better. It's going to make you 300% more efficient, but like nobody kind of wants it in that market. And that is uh Something that also you might call it a calm company, but is probably not a good fit either for us to invest in or probably for the founder to be working on. Um, that's a kind of common failure mode of calm companies, I would say, is like building this thing that people don't ultimately really want. Like a solution looking for a problem. Yeah, exactly. Although one of the things I'm always kind of like an optimist, like, um, you know, the kind of move that I've sort of found for these is hey, you should probably just, if this software really works as good as you say it does, and none of these companies will use it you should just use it yourself and compete with them, right? You should just go beat them. <laughs> use your own really good software to go like be them and be much better than them and eat their lunch. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I, I do definitely see people trying to sell to these industries. And sometimes it's not their fault. It's just like a stodgy old industry, you know, where the founders of these companies that they're trying to sell to just are not tech savvy or interested in buying software. And how does the return profile work? So if you are
1: making an investment into one of these comp companies and Mm -hmm. they're not planning on selling, but maybe they get to 50
2: million in revenue. How does that work? Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, frankly, a lot of investors don't even really think about is that when you're kind of running a fund, you have this whole like layer cake of incentives going all the way down from the top of the food chain, the very largest what we call LPs, limited partners, these pools of capital that are looking to deploy. And then they put it into a fund to fund and the fund to fund puts it into your fund. And then you put that money into, you know, a company and then it has to go all the way back up the food chain. And yeah. you've got to really think about like the incentives at each of those steps, you know, um, and those influence the decision-making of, of the investor. And so, The thing that we've tried to do is to really rethink the whole incentive chain. Um, And so it's one of the reasons why we've raised almost all of our capital so far from entrepreneurs, from successful, mostly bootstrapped type software entrepreneurs. Um, At this point, it's like over 200 folks that that provide us our capital. The way the return profile works is basically, you know, it's kind of, if you're not familiar with early stage investing, it sounds super boring. It's just like we basically try to make a lot of bets on software companies. We hope that, you know, some of them will return us, you know, 3X our money, 5X our money, maybe one or two will be 10X our money. And and that all adds up to like a really nice, you know, total net return. Some of them will fail, et cetera. Um, the reason it's, I would say, very different is that almost all of early stage investing, especially in technology companies, is based around this idea of a power law, which is that, you know, basically all your companies are going to fail or you're going to get like one Uber and that's going to provide one 100X return that's going to return the whole fund, you know, three times, four times, whatever, that sort of thing. Um, And obviously that has worked um, in certain cases. And so our basic bet is that that's not like a law of physics that, you know, every, if you invest in 20 early stage software companies that, you know, 18 of them are going to fail. Um, And we kind of think you can, that that's a knob that you can sort of turn back and forth and Mm -hmm. dial to another sort of optimal location, which is a lot less failure. Maybe probably not any, you know, Ubers, maybe a MailChimp, you know, but probably an outside (laughs) chance, Um, you know, and, and just a lot more kind of like, we say like, it's like singles, doubles and triples versus like a ton of strikeouts and one Grand Slam, right?
0: That I understand. Yeah. I picked that up. I got the (laughs) sports metaphor there. Yeah, got it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah. And tell me, I mean, you you and I both know Bryce at NBC, but like, what do you think happened over there? Because they had a similar type of playbook, but ultimately he decided that it wasn't working for them.
2: Yeah, so NDVC um, is probably the closest analog we have to a similar fund deploying a similar strategy. Still, pretty meaningful differences, but given how few players there are, we're probably the closest to each other. Um, and that was spun out of O'Reilly AlphaTech Ventures, where uh, Bryce Roberts was the main GP there, and they ran this experiment called NDVC, which was a lot of the same like vibes um, and actually about. Two, I think, two years before we started, they they deployed the first version of that, um, and then they raised a second fund that was totally dedicated to it, and then they went out to raise the third fund. Uh, maybe I'm I'm not totally sure about those numbers, but um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, they tried to raise that fund, and then Bryce wrote a a long medium post saying, "Hey, you know, we're just not getting the uptake from LPs that we need um, to raise this fund. We're we're ending the experiment and basically going back to." the the venture model essentially. Um so they're they're not like shutting down. <laughs> they're basically just switching strategies back to venture. You know, it's interesting because my understanding, of course, this is one of the challenges of all this private investing stuff is that there's like no public information about this. It's all hearsay or, you know, you yeah. talk to one of their investors who does see the the actual yeah. details. But my understanding is that the returns are really, really good <laughs> from ndvc yeah. Like like a very, very strong performing fund that people should be excited to put money into. Um, so the strategy I don't think failed. I think it's a bit more of what I was talking about before, where you have to think through the incentives of the entire stack of LPs that you're working with and what do they want. And sometimes it's like very unintuitive. It's like, oh, well, we're already getting enough risk over here with our exposure to technology stocks. So like we we need you to only be trying to get a 10x fund or a 0x fund. Right. Yeah. And like this whole like you're just going to like knock out singles, doubles and triples. just doesn't work for us. We don't care. That's a yeah. good investment, you know. And so I think it's basically some variation of that where there was just a misalignment between the LPs that they were talking to or had been working with for at that point over a decade that just they wanted the other thing, not the thing that they were trying to sell. Yeah. I love that you're explaining it like through the the stack of like all the investors and
1: like the LPs into the fund of the, fund the, fund the funds and to the fund of the funds into the venture and that like all the way through because I, I think that a lot of folks, first time entrepreneurs in particular, like don't know what they're signing up for. Yeah, they just like you were saying like, they're just trying to raise money. And they feel like if they raise money, they're gonna like make their thing a success. And then like, what's what saddened me over the years is like knowing people who raised money, and then they actually had a viable business, but because of their funding structure, it's no longer viable. Like they could have had an amazing life, they could have taken care of their stakeholders, like their team and their community. Um, and they just can't because like they're underwater. And it gets confusing to this exactly to your point here where it's like, well, Indy had great returns, but it's like that overall portfolio allocation ends up getting you screwed.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, we've come a long way. Um you know, when I first started raising money, there was just no content or yes. transparency about any of this at all, and probably the same for you you know, you had like Fred Wilson's blog and that was like the best that was resource yep. you possibly yep. had, you know. Um, now there's at least quite a bit more content and and information out there for entrepreneurs to sort of really understand that. But I, it still feels like it's the sort of the tip of the iceberg. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why from pretty much day one, I sort of knew we had to be Radically transparent, over communicative, like just everything in public, everything explained, you know, and so if you go on our website now, I mean, I've probably written 300,000 words for our our website, and it's just all of like, every single question, topic, (laughs) everything, you know, if if you're curious about it, like you can get all the way through the whole material, our fundraising deck is public, like everything, you know, Because, yeah, I mean, I think entrepreneurs are right to be sort of um, at least skeptical and and certainly should be curious um, of like, what are these folks actually trying to do when they invest money in my company? So I want to pivot to something else, which is to a degree similar, also very different.
1: But Tyler, both you and I, we are both owners of Lazy Lions. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's a lazy lion.
2: Nice. Uh, <laughs> I'm a relatively recent acquirer of one. Yes. Uh, so am I. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Lazy
1: lion is an NFT. Obviously, it's uh, part of a uh, 10,000 piece of generative art. But it's a it's a profile picture NFT, which is like if you buy this NFT, you can like put it as your profile picture. Which I know is Tyler. You did this. Mm-hmm. You change your your profile pic on like Twitter and stuff. Oh, yeah.
0: yep. I see it.
1: So maybe you can explain to the audience. What is an NFT?
0: Oh, please. And then
1: secondly, I think it is actually interesting thinking about like portfolio allocation for yourself, right? And like, you're the guy who runs like Com Company Fund, but you're buying like publicly buying some cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. I just admitted that I bought this. I haven't admitted this publicly yet. Um, But like, what is this thing and why did you do
2: it? So, I mean, this is a really interesting topic to navigate for me because... Basically, I mean, if you do the sort of Twitter search, you know, like from Tyler Tringas NFT, you will see that I've been sort of following it along because I think that it's important for me as an early stage investor to understand new platforms and paradigms, like full stop. So I should be exploring this stuff to some extent. And my sort of initial round of looking at this was I just like went straight to the tech, like what is the actual technology here and try to find people who are speaking to that. And it turns out there's like some huge problems <laughs> uh, with it in the sense that like NFTs are not what people most people think they are and what many people Uh, market them as, you know, the the idea is like, oh, this is a way to take a piece of digital art and you own that art as encoded on the blockchain. And unlike a Bitcoin, which is fungible within the other Bitcoin, you have a non-fungible, unique token that represents your ownership in this piece of digital art. A lot of people would kind of allude to the idea of just like a certificate of ownership or a bearer bond or something like that, right? You have this thing, it means you own this other thing. Voila. The reality is like, it does not at all mean that. And this is just like a technical thing, which is that like on the blockchain, when you actually buy an NFT, it's just like a unique line item that says you own, you know, basically serial number 003. And then there's a piece of metadata that points to a copy of that JPEG posted on like a CDN somewhere. So it's much (laughs) closer to like a QR code, right? It's like a pointer to a thing. It's not a bearer bond of the thing. It's like, hey, this is a QR code that points to an image, would you like to buy this QR code for $5,000, right? It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's making
0: me think of like, is it kind of like how you can like name a star? That, I don't know why that's yeah. where my brain went, but that, that was it. <laughs> that's <is>
2: very similar. <laughs> <laughs> that is okay. very, very similar. Okay. Yeah, yeah. no, there, there's, there's like an amazing thing that went around Twitter a while ago that was like someone describing it. It was something about like, you know, a sticky note pointing that says you own the Mona Lisa, like crumpled up outside of the Louvre, you know, <laughs> and you, you sold that to someone for the same price as the Mona Lisa or something like that. Um I mean, so I've been pretty publicly critical about the technology. and said, look, I think, I think there's something here. I think it would be amazing if it did what it said it did, but it doesn't do what mm-hmm. it says it does. And I think like a mm-hmm. lot of consumers are betting tens of thousands of dollars on stuff, really not knowing exactly what they're signing up for anyway so bringing it back to why the heck do i own one of these lions um is i sort of reached the point where i was like okay this is an interesting intellectual exercise this is like uh we can do some intellectual yoga here let's <laughs> see if we can maintain our critique but also sort of open-mindedly explore the space um so i basically spent like a Saturday morning. And researched a bunch of stuff, joined a bunch of discords, like bought a bunch of different NFTs, like trying to sort of sample different kinds of projects like Lazy Lions is super popular and all the tech people have them. And then like um, the Woodies was this other thing that had just launched. And so there was a pre-sale dynamic and Mm -hmm. all this sort of Mm stuff. So I was basically just trying to like just try it all out with an open mind and see if anything was interesting there. And um, my basic theory on NFTs right now is that they are doing a really cool job of surfacing kind of like latent demand and creativity uh, that is probably better served by different technology in the sense that like, you know, the NFT launch around the idea of buying a royalty stream of a digital Mm -hmm. artist has shown that there's actually huge demand for people to like basically own equity in music artists. I don't think NFTs are a good solution to that. But like, we should be looking at that and say like, let's build this, (laughs) you know? So that's kind of my general vibe is like exploring NFTs from that perspective of like, what opportunities are, are they uncovering um, that maybe the NFT technology is not at least right now uh, the best fit for. Um, So that's why I have a lion. Got it. I have, I have it as my profile pick because they had this really cool app that actually like checks whether or not you have done it, it, set it as your profile pick issues you a status and then like airdrops you rewards into your wallet, which is actually like very cool. Like I think that's pretty smart. So I was like, I'll test it out.
1: Yeah, it's (laughs) funny because like I have looked at some of that stuff and the thing that like gravitated to me was like the idea that like your NFT is basically like your access card to a community. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't really matter what the photo or the image or whatever is. Like, it, it does because you want it to be cool and, like, you're spending money on it. But, like, really, it's, like, access to this community. And when you talk about the discords and stuff, like, um, I just didn't realize until I started to dig in how active and how wild a lot of these communities are. Yeah. The Lazy Lines is a good example. Like, you go in there and there's, like, people going bananas so Just like <laughs> so excited and talking about all of the stuff that's going to be built on top of the the art you know the cartoons they're going to be made and the music that's going to be dropped and like this yeah. there's a super strong incentive as you're saying to like make it your profile pick which is a major way of like marketing and advertising a project if there's a market then it's real that's the thing that i've been realizing like i was kind of trying to like intellectualize my way around the issues with it and then i'm like if there's real demand and there's an actual market like then is this stuff real? And is what you're really accessing a community? Which is also why I was wondering when you're thinking about like Founder Summit and communities that you build, mm-hmm. if you think about these things as like, do they influence each other? Does it, does it influence your thinking on the type of community of founders you could build or like the access you'd give someone if you launched an NFT or something?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely raising some interesting questions. I think the access to digital communities is one of the more interesting I think, so I'm not sold on the, like, if there's a market and people want to pay for it, it's fine because art is cool. I think, like, like art fraud is a real thing and it's a crime and there's, like, the FBI is dedicated to making sure that, like, authenticity and verifiability is real in art, even if, you know, you're willing to pay $100 million for a weird Damien Hirst statue. Um, (laughs) Like, that's not my beef. My beef is that, like, there's no version of all this other stuff that is also really important to art, which is... Yes, verifying authenticity and actual enforceability of ownership, um, and so I think that is still kind of a, a valid critique of of a lot of NFTs is that you don't actually have authenticity or verified ownership of this stuff that you think you bought, which you may value at ten thousand dollars, million dollars, whatever, but you don't own it. So, so there's a problem here. Um, so, so that's that's part of it. But I do think the access code to digital communities is a really interesting example. And it's, it's raising a lot of questions that I don't think have clear-cut answers that have like, they have pros and cons. Like there's a lot of activity in a lot of these discords that are based around NFT access, but also it's unbelievably financialized. Like I find it like very yeah. much like turns me off when like 99% of the activity is about like mechanics for pumping the price, Right. Um, and I would not want, for example, the founder summit <laughs> community that we have to be entirely, you know, dedicated to raising the the cost of entry uh, into the community, right? Um, but at the same time, there's enormous amounts of energy and activity and you know, thinking big that gets generated by a community basically having ownership over itself. Um, so I don't know what the answer is, but I, I do think that. Um, It's it's actually I'm glad that I kind of like dove in and decided to watch rather than kind of like sitting on the sidelines with my arms folded. Right. Um, Yeah. And I feel the same way in terms of like it's important to try
1: and see and learn. And like the downside is like we understand the downside. It's like whatever you're spending, you know, on these NFTs. So it's like understand the risk they're making and the upside is like hopefully the learning and like seeing where this stuff evolves. Um, Yeah. It feels like there's so much activity. There's something here what will end up being NFTs and what will end up being other solutions to your point. I don't know, but it's like, it's been fun to watch, uh, but it's also very not calm. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. go ahead. It's not, it's not calm. So I, I want to just go back, go back to, to the comp company fund and just talk about like, let's go to the future. Um, what are you excited about, about the future of the fund? Like, where do you want to take it? Like the NFTs unpredictable, comp fund, hopefully more predictable. Like how do you, how do you think about it?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the good news is we're, we're just about three years in closer to two and a half but you know in that range um we've made about 50 investments and the the pace of investing is increasing uh along with fund size and and the network effects of the community and all that sort of stuff so we're starting to reach a point where it's like hey this is less of a crazy bet and more of a like this pretty much works and so how big is the market for it and the good news is the market is enormous this is not gonna surprise you. I think we both think that like the the amount of opportunities that are being unlocked in software entrepreneurship right now are just growing exponentially. I sort of call it like you know, software is eating entrepreneurship, right? Every single yep. opportunity is software or software enabled these days, or that's where like all the growth is. Um and so that means like our ambition should not be like 50 companies in two and a half years. It should be like hundreds and then thousands and then tens of thousands of companies a year, because that's really like the total market here is significantly larger than the entire venture capital asset class, in my opinion. And so that's really what I'm thinking about right now is how to make myself, um, not the bottleneck on our ability to grow. So the big focus for us is, um, figuring out a way to take the thesis. And it's part of the reason, again, why I've been like writing, 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 is that our thesis is now like, it's a set of tools that you can pick up and use. There's no special sauce that we haven't written about. <laughs> um, you know. And so what I'm gonna try to do is encourage and incentivize a lot of people to actually start trying to deploy capital on our thesis. Um, and ideally, maybe that leads to other people launching similar funds. I think that would be great. But uh, by the same token, I would like for there to be, you know, a dozen general partners versus uh, versus one um, sometime in the very near future. So thinking about scale. That's awesome. It's funny because like on Simmersex, we're we're less calm than the companies <laughs> that we invest say. in. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I think is actually right. You know, I really think that like a lot of times there's this mechanic of, entrepreneurs can go and, and book a a real life-changing win, right? They can put, you know, seven, eight figures in their pocket and now start to think about, like, what's the thing that's going to be the dent in the universe? And we're kind of that, right? Like, I had an exit, and that let me kind of, like, think bigger. And so now I feel much more comfortable kind of taking a, a little bit of a bigger bet on this overall thing. And I think that's a smart thing that a lot of entrepreneurs will will do, you know? That's
1: awesome. It is funny because going back to earlier in the conversation and just like what I know about like the private company world, like there's so many stories of companies that are doing so well that like nobody knows about, right? Yeah, like that's most of them, I would say. And I agree with you; the opportunity is like really huge, Um, and it's it's cool. Like, thanks for bringing us in and letting us letting us hear about how you think through this stuff and why calm is the future. And you know, like I'm rooting for you guys. I'm so excited about it. And uh, I also hope our lazy lions just kind of like uh, <laughs> dramatically increase in value. So you and me, Tyler, <laughs> in it together. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's got the calm company fund. He's a calm guy. Just pretty calm. And I i think, Sylvie, you kept her calm even though you're so sick.
0: <laughs> Keep calm and carry on. <laughs> Why are you laughing now? Because <laughs> you brought up sick again? Yeah. <laughs> you have to Because you're
1: laugh. like, whatever you do, don't mention that I'm sick. But I want everyone to know that Sylvie called me this morning. She's like, I'm not feeling good. I don't know if I can do this. And then during the call, you're like, actually, I can do this. I got this. <laughs> and you just crushed that. You were just like, present. <laughs> and aware and just like asking <gasps> oh great God. questions and feeding me stuff through the chat it's you've had, you've had a great day you've really wow. you know you just I crushed i really
0: it. i overcame a lot today you really did but back to the real star of the show tyler i felt like i was taking a crash course a little bit in like investment investments investing investing yeah and it was it was very intricate and some of it i definitely had some follow up questions. And I want like a bootstrappers reading list.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also interesting, like if you have not seen as much or learned as much about like the startup investing space to start with Tyler, yeah, you're going to end up in a very different place than if yeah. you start with like the VC approach. And in either case, I think he kind of said it best, which is like, you need to understand the incentive structure all the way through the stack. And it's very complicated. But once you dig into it, understand it, it really helps understand people's motivations. Yeah. And what's a win and what's a failure? Because I think the thing that's cool about what Tyler's doing is like, you can have a business that should be a huge win for someone. And the way that the investment structure is like, it still will be. And in a lot of cases, there are people who start businesses and it's like 5 million bucks in revenue for a SaaS business should be able to be life-changing, just like it would be if you had a $5 million restaurant, you'd be feeling pretty freaking good. Yep. But... If you raise the wrong million bucks or whatever, and most people raise way more than that these days, you can have that 5 million business be a horrible failure. Mm -hmm. And it's just the structure of the deal and like how the money comes in, even what you do to grow. So um, yeah, it's like really, really understanding that stuff is just so important before you go through a door you can't come back through.
0: Totally. And wasn't he saying that he's like kind of self-taught? He was like doing finance before, then like taught himself how to code. That was wild.
1: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people like him. I think there's a lot of people who they're learning on the web themselves, and they don't need permission. mm mm-hmm. um, And they're just going. And he's in the fortunate spot of like, he sold his business, and he saw how life-changing that could be. Right. Because it is crazy when you look at the math on a lot of this stuff. I mean, just this is like recent news, but MailChimp just got sold to Intuit, right? Oh,
0: I didn't know that. You didn't know that? That's a big headline that I missed.
1: They got sold for $12 billion. Blah!
0: <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm glad that
1: this news is breaking on the podcast for you. It's breaking Um, for me. But like in that case, like if you go do the math, it's kind of insane because they had no outside investment. That all goes to the founders. And then they carved out some for employees. But if you were to go look at like another company with a $12 billion market cap and you went to go look at like the ownership percentages of the people and stuff, like there's no way that anyone comes close to the return that these guys got. And it's just how it's structured. And if you think about it on a small scale too, it's the same thing. So it's like if you have a $5 million business, you never raise money, um, or you raise it in like a favorable way, like the the Tyler way, uh, you end up in control of your business. You saw it, life-changing. You have a $5 million business and you raised $30 million, you don't get a cent. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a thing that people miss, When they're thinking about these options.
0: So, then what's the incentive of going the VC route?
1: The incentive is you can get a lot of capital very rapidly. Okay. They want a massive return. Like a 10X is almost not really good enough. Like, you really want the 100X, the 500X on the investment. And so, if you're down to like push every system, um, and break every system that could exist in a company to make things as fast as possible or make things like free for like an unbelievably long amount of time to try to, you know, gain a foothold in a market or something. You could end up making these companies that are much larger, much mm-hmm. faster. And that's the attraction. So
0: that's like the Uber. Well, the-, the downside
1: of MailChimp and similar with Wistia is like MailChimp's been around for 20 years. Right. So they built this business. There's been a lot of multi billion dollar companies that have been built in less time, much less time. Yeah. There's not very many of them, but if the VCs are in them and or you're the founder, like yeah, you can have a massive massive result. So it's kind of like it's compressing time and it's also compressing risk. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah,
0: no, it does. It does. It's interesting. Yeah. But let's uh let's remind our our listeners what we always remind them at the end of the show, which is
1: we want to say thank you for listening. If you like the show, please rate it and review it wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, we want your feedback. We want your voice memos. We want your ideas, which you can send us at TTLpod at wistia.com. And of course, go to Wistia.com for all the other amazing Wistia Studios content that's coming out. And I think that's it until next time. Is that right, Sylvie? Are we done?
0: We got it all. We're done. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.